Welcome everybody to my podcast. This is called The Interventional Endoscopist. My name is Mankavel Suchdev and I'm your host. I am a therapeutic endoscopist in Arizona and this is my first ever attempt at a podcast. In this podcast, I'd like to explore topics that are pertinent to the practice of interventional endoscopy. Why this podcast is a question you might ask to yourself. Why should I listen to this over something else? And I know that there are podcasts that are created by societies that talk about journal articles and different topics and techniques and things like that. But I'm in private practice and I'm not your average academic interventional endoscopist. So my goal for this is to try to explore topics that aren't really talked about um, or you know you may be in practice and you may be somebody who wants to know more about a certain product or how a technique works or you might even want to know how industry approaches different things so through this series of podcasts that I hope to create and make popular <laughs> um, I'd like to be able to discuss those and and see if my experience helps anybody um, so over the course of time, I will try to get some friends who are in industry and in different academic positions and try to see if we can, you know, create a dialogue and even interview process for different people to talk about things. Uh, but today, what I would like to talk about is recording endoscopic procedures. The first thing I want to talk about is what's the context of this? So why, why am I bringing this up? Well, when I was a um, third-year GI fellow, I was fortunate enough to be offered a spot in interventional endoscopy. Um, and this was back in 2008 and nine, And I was given, or I was, uh, I earned, I should say, a spot at Northwestern University and my mentor, our mentors were John Martin, as well as um, Siri Kamanduri and Raj Kaswani. Um, I learned a lot, and during the interview process, you know, I became fascinated with interventional procedures. But one thing that I learned about was recording your procedures so that you could learn how to do them better, and you could even teach them and provide a repository. Raj actually was really good about telling me why he thought it was important and uh, explained to me how to do it from his perspective. And Sri and John were both extremely supportive and um, allowed me to you know, kind of mess around in the endolab and add uh, different equipment that they never really needed at that time and uh, record procedures. It was, it was really a great time. But prior to that, I was, when, when I had been accepted into my fourth year fellowship spot, I applied for a program. Um, it was sponsored by ASGE, or the American Society for Gastrointestinal Endoscopy, for those of you who don't know what it is. Um, and Dr. Peter Kelsey and um, Dr. Raju, uh, G.S. Raju, uh, had a course that was the ASGE Fourth Year Fellows Video Editing Course. It had been going on for two or three years before that, and. I applied and, you know, if you were an incoming fourth-year fellow, you were most likely going to be accepted. This was held at the Doubletree Hotel in Chicago near the current location of the ASGE Center. 
And in that course, it was an intense day and a half to two days where we, and, and it was my first experience of actually, you know, as a fellow being flown out to a program, being put up in a nice hotel, you know, and, and basically being fed and taught how to do things. And they provided us with a lot of, um, uh, a lot of, um, information and, and a way to record. So one of the things that they gave us for one full year, we had a PC and they also provided us with some foot pedals. Um, and you know, that sounds a little archaic, you know, even though this is only 12 years ago or 13 years ago, um, they gave us foot pedals that allowed you to record. And um, the idea was in the course to teach you what you should be recording as a fourth year fellow and then obviously how you should behave during that program or, or sorry, during the procedures or how you should be handling your scope so that your videos come out well. And the foot pedal would, you know, start recording, stop recording, and, and they encouraged us to record as much as we could during our fellowship and then they taught us how to use video editing software. Um, again, this was a PC, so we weren't using a, any Mac software. We were using um, whatever it was, and, and I'm blanking on that at this point. But we were able to take that um, data and that, that footage, and then we were able to edit it down, and then all of us were required to submit. And fortunately for me, I was uh, selected as one of the five or six people who had their case um, picked for a presentation of the video editing forum. Um, I didn't win it, um, although I think I should have, but, <laughs> um, you know, Dr. Commandori and I did a really nice case on um, histoplasmosis in the esophagus um, and showed that, and, you know, I still remember being able, it was my first time presenting in front of a huge audience at, a, at DDW and Vanessa Shami and a few other folks were there. So it was, it was, it was really, really a good experience for me. Um, but, you know, my experience in that course, um, it was sponsored by Pentax, and, um, you know, I learned so much. I learned how you're supposed to, you know, approach a case and what you should be recording, etc., kind of things like I, I did before. Prior to that course, I was actually very interested in recording cases in my fellowship program in Memphis. Um, and at that time, what I realized was it was hard. You know, without a computer, we had a, a VHS recorder that was provided, I believe, by Sony via Olympus. And, um, you know, this was a specially designed VHS recorder that had an SDI input that would connect to the back of a scope processor. And just like, you know, I, I'm 48 years old, so just like when I was 10 to 15, if I wanted to record a sports game or something like that um, on TV or a movie, you had to set your recorder, your VHS on, hit the record button, and do all those things. And honestly, it was it was a disaster. Um, you know, I, I still have, I think, 15 or 20 VHS tapes, which are, you know, not the same quality that you and I um, currently enjoy on our TVs and recording devices, but, you know, the, it was something that we used. And, um, and then you would have to download it somehow to your computer, edit it, and then... Um, uh, kind of make a video. The next thing I had before the Pentax course was, uh, you know, I, I kind of, I think this was 2007 or 8, I, um, I went to uh, Best Buy and there was a device called a Dazzle, D-A-Z-Z-L-E. 
And there were a lot of jokes that were made based off that name. But this thing um, had uh, composite cables, RGB composite. So if you're not familiar with that, it's with the old-fashioned TVs and Nintendos and things like that. You had the red, yellow, and white cables that plugged into this thing. And then this, in turn, plugged into your computer. So this little device was um, used to convert signal from your scope, or scope processor, I should say, into um, data that could be recorded on your computer. And then, obviously, it was a lot of um, uh, memory, and you had to record one case or two cases, and then you had to do something with it that day or you know that night, whatever, and then you would have to erase it. Otherwise, it would you know fill up your hard drive. Um, it was a really good device, but, um, you know, not super practical. And then, as I mentioned, at the Pentax Core, we, we got a, uh, um, a laptop with recording software in it. Finally, afterwards, you fast forward to my career as an endoscopist and what I've been using the last um, probably six years is a device called the Dragon or Blackmagic Dragon Box. Um, they're not really available very easily on Amazon anymore, but this was about $400. And in contrast, the Dazzle device I used was about 50. Um, but the Dragon Box that I, I got um, plugs in to the back of the scope using SDI, and we'll get into that in a little bit. Um, and uh, you could record directly into this device, but you had to put a memory chip in there, or SDI card. And, um, sorry, SD card, excuse me, not SDI, SD card. And, you know, usually you want something with at least 256 uh, gigabytes, etc. cetera. Uh, but quite costly. And, um, you know, it's very small. It's got a great form factor, but it is obviously very easy to steal and to lose. Um, so that's kind of what my experience has been with recording. So why do I feel like we should be talking about this? And why do I think we should be recording endoscopic procedures? Well... There's a couple of benefits. Um, I think the first one is education and training. You know, if you record your procedures, you can absolutely use those to teach your fellows or teach your residents about different techniques. You can use those videos for presentations. Um, you can use it for uh, quality uh, or QA, you know, or QI, excuse me. Y you can look at withdrawal times. You can see how is somebody doing a colonoscopy and, and you know, are they doing a good job at looking behind folds? So you can use this as a way to teach yourself as well as your colleagues how to be better at colonoscopy or other procedures. Uh, there is a component of potential monetization of these um, videos. Uh, some companies do, for example, in um, uh, office visits, you can use a company uh, called Medical Memory where you can put up a video camera in your room and you can obviously record the encounter with the patient and then they can take it home. You can sell it to them, all those type of things. And you can do the same thing with endoscopic videos. You know, if you wanted to do a screening colonoscopy and the patient asked you, hey, um, can I have a video of my procedure? You can certainly get that video. You can make clips um, or you can use software to help you do that. And you can potentially sell that to the patients. You know, you already give them a report with pictures, but maybe there's a world in which we can actually give the video clip to the patient for a profit to yourself or to your endo center. 
another way to monetize videos is to actually use it in research. Um, there are several companies out there that sell um, uh, the ability to use video to identify patients who can qualify for research studies. And, um, you know, that in turn provides a revenue source for your practice or for your uh, facility. And the, the last one is social media. And we see this a lot these days where you can uh, make small clips and, you know, a minute to two minutes of an interesting technique or, you know, if it's uh, uh, ERCP, a really nice sphincterotomy or EUS, a liver biopsy, etc., and you can put that clip onto social media, whether it be Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, etc. So these are the benefits of doing that. Um, some of the downsides, obviously, is if you record procedures, is there a potential um, lawsuit? So going back to the earlier example of monetization, if you're going to record colonoscopies and send them to patients and have them pay for it, what happens if you miss a polyp? You know, and that polyp that you missed happens to be on the video. So, you know, there, there is some concerns about that. There's obviously concerns about patient privacy, you know, and, um, you know, trying to do this in a HIPAA-compliant fashion. So certainly a lot of questions about video recording, but, um, you know, that's an individual decision. Personally, I fall on the benefit side. I don't see a huge problem with um, missing polyps, etc. because, and like I said, I'll get into this later, but because of the way that you do the video clips. All right, so next, uh, what should you do if you're preparing to record an endoscopic procedure? So, you know, first is obviously when you're doing video recording, you want to be able to record your screen. You know, so what I mean by that is you want to record what you're seeing. And so you, your device needs to be able to plug in and get the data, and you should be able to get that onto your um, you're recording uh, software or hardware, but the thing that you really want to uh, make sure is that you don't have any patient information on there. Um, so, for example, with a lot of scope or scope processors, a lot of centers will enter the patient's information, and when you're doing that scope on the TV screen in front of you, you'll see that patient's uh, name and date of birth or your location. So. Keep, you have to be very aware of where is that data coming from. So, so the best way to think about it is that you have your scope processor, which gives you the raw data from your scope. And then that feeds into your computer, which adds the information in there. And generally speaking, the screen that you're looking at is feeding, is getting a signal after the computer is in the loop. So you got your scope processor, you got your computer, and then you've got your... Um, TV screen. So the scope, the computer being in the middle uh, adds, and that computer is what hosts your uh, Provation, GMED, and Cerner, Epic, etc. That's what's adding the um, information on the TV screen. So a lot of times, if you look at the screen in front of you, it's got the patient's name, the date, the location, etc. But if you look at the screen behind you, the one that's attached directly to the processor, that information may not be there. So just be aware of where you are recording from. Because if you do record from the screen with patient data on it, then you will, when you edit it and you, if you, whatever you choose to do with it, you'll have to put a black box on the patient name. Um, obviously, every scope processor, and specifically Olympus, for example, has a button that takes the, equip, uh, the information off the screen. So if you're aware of that or know where that is, then you definitely take it off. 
Also, when you are recording, you want to show your technique. So remember that if you are spastic, if you move the scope around a lot, you don't hold it still, you don't make slow and dedicated movements, your video is going to show the exact same thing. Of course, you can use um, you know, techniques like slow motion, etc., to get rid of those, but it's a lot easier if you just if you decide to be a video recorder that you you approach every procedure as if you're recording it. Now, as far as consent is concerned, you know, it's debatable in my opinion because every consent that a patient signs, if you read the fine print, it says that the patient is consenting to have photographic evidence and video evidence of the procedure done. If you choose to, and if there's no harm in having an additional line or sentence or information piece or even another consent to the patient to say, hey, uh, we're recording a procedure and, and you know, at the, down the road I may end up publishing it. Of course, it's not going to have your name and no one's going to know it's you, but we may use that raw data for a publication or a presentation, etc. Um, again, I can't stress enough that you have to really make sure that the patient's name and, and the date of birth, etc., is not seen, and ideally, you don't want even the location put on that video. So, uh, the next thing is our equipment. I've touched upon it briefly about you know what I used to use, but obviously, you have to have a capture device. Now, that can be VHS, which in 2023 is fairly archaic, and then after that, um, and 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 the downside of that, of course, is that they're not super, they're not available anymore. And, it's really hard to even find a VHS player so that you can play a video at home on it. But, you know, a lot of us still have them around. But, again, it's a dying technology and probably not the right one to use. Um, a lot of um, scope companies still sell you capture devices that are CD and DVD-ROM based. Again, not um, bad, but absolutely not, not uh, something that we would be seeing um, very frequently. Um, these can be very costly. It's crazy that a DVD-ROM or something that you would have at home for your computer could only be about $20 or $30. But our scope processor companies will charge you up to $5,000 for a DVD recorder. Not to mention that you've got to find DVDs or CDs to record on. And outside of eBay, they're not very easy to find anymore. Again, it's a very archaic technology, but you really don't want to go that route, in my personal opinion. Um, then you have capture cards. Now, these are cheaper. Sorry, some of these are cheaper, some of them are more costly, but capture cards um, basically connect the scope processor or take the signal from your scope processor and convert it to a format that your uh, computer can read. So different types of capture cards exist in the market right now. One of them is an HDMI input one. Those are cheaper, and actually one of the advantages is that you can record it directly from the screen. However, there is something called degradation of signal. So if you're recording directly from the scope processor, that is the purest and cleanest picture you'll get. If you record off the monitor, uh, you will have less uh, quality imaging than what you had off the scope processor. Again, HDMI input's cheaper. Um, those devices, I've seen them as cheap as $40 or $50 on Amazon. I've also seen them as expensive as $150, $200. What is the most important thing is something called SDI input. Uh, these are more costly, but they do have the advantage of coming directly off 
the scope processor. You can use these off some monitors, medical grade monitors, etc. But if you're going to look for a capture card, you really want SDI input. Now, an SDI cable looks a lot like a coax cable. It's got the round uh, cable with a tiny little pin inside of it. But if you pay real close attention to it, on the outside of the circular part, there's these two notches. And they fit directly into a scope processor. And you have to push them in, They're kind of spring-loaded. And then you have to turn them to the right. So for people who use, for example, a 190 or a 180 scope processor by Olympus, if you look at the front of that processor, on the bottom right-hand corner, there's a little um, uh, input. That is an SDI uh, input, and then the SDI cable fits into that. And then, of course, um, the other end would have to plug into this device. And no computers that I'm aware of actually have SDI input in them. Many obviously have HDMI input. So then what you also have to consider is when you are capturing to a hardware device, this data has to go somewhere, it has to be stored somewhere. So as I mentioned earlier, I used a, this device called the Blackmagic uh, Dragon device. So that data was stored on an SD card, right, or a micro SD. Uh, some of these devices, if you're gonna use just a clear cut capture card, it has to go directly onto your laptop. So you need to have your laptop with you, you need to carry it around, and you also wanna make sure you have enough memory in, or, or storage in that. So personally, I think if you're gonna be recording a lot of cases, my recommendation would be get a laptop with at least a terabyte of hard drive storage on it. Um, but also know you gotta carry that thing around, and, and most of us do because we're all using EMR or EHR now, but Honestly, I mean, you know, to carry a laptop to the endo lab or to the hospital endo lab is, can be a little annoying. Um, as I mentioned, some of them do record to SDI cards, but those are going to be more costly and it's an additional cost just to buy the SD card. But super, super easy to transport that data from your uh, center or from your endoscopy center to, <clears throat> to home or wherever you decide to do your video editing. So um, that's one thing to consider. Um, other people have been lucky enough to set up hard drives or servers um, at their hospitals dedicated to video recording. One of my mentors, uh, Dr. Kaswani, mentioned to me when he was at WashU, they did have a server dedicated to video recording. Um, and that was run by the hospital, so that's always nice too if you can access it while you're at work or from home or wherever you choose to do it. Finally, uh, there's a great new technology. Um, this is virtual or cloud blade. Uh, excuse me, cloud-based um, procedure recording. So the only company that I know of right now that does this is Virgo Video. Uh, um, Virgo is a company that will work with you at your center or your hospital, and they bring in a, a small little box that attaches to your scope processor. And what that device does or that box does is it translates a signal and uploads all your video to a cloud and then you have a secure HIPAA compliant portal where you can actually go in and uh, download parts of your procedure you can edit your procedure in real time and then you can even um, download it to your desktop and and, and it doesn't record any uh, patient data in fact they're very um, particular about putting that box uh, right off the processor so remember from earlier. If you record off the processor, you're not going to have patient data on it, but if you record it after the computer, again, every processor has a computer, um, that will record patient information. 
So they come right off the processor and they send that signal to a HIPAA compliant cloud. And then as a customer of theirs, you have the ability to download whatever you want. One of the cool things about it is that when you use that service, you can log in um, in the specific room that you're at, and then it will record every single procedure done in that room. And then I think something like 5, 6, 7 p.m., uh, the computer or the, the service automatically logs everybody out of their uh, room so that you're not accidentally recording procedures of somebody else's and whatnot. Um, you can also manually record. I, I, I use this in one of my uh, facilities, and it is a great thing. You can expect to pay around $500 a month. Um, obviously, that's subject to, or subject to um, any agreements, contracts, negotiations, etc. But on average, list price is around $500 a person per room. Or, or sorry, $500 a device per room, not a person. Um, I, I think it's the easiest and most convenient thing, but obviously, you know, not every hospital has it, not every center has it, and you have to um, really, <clears throat> you know, uh, figure that one out for yourself. Um, but in the description of this procedure, I'll provide some links of all the devices that I've worked with in the past, as well as Virgo. Um, so some tips that I would share with uh, people who are getting into video recording. Be mindful. Number one, be mindful that you're scoping that when you make fast movements, they're hard to see. So if a screen, if a picture on the TV screen in front of you is blurry, it's going to be a little more blurry on the video uh, that you record. And it's going to be harder to edit. So always make you know specific movements. Always kind of scope with the approach that someone's going to be watching your procedure. Post procedure, you want to make sure that you know you handle that data properly. That you don't uh, have any identifiable information. I can't. I can't stress that enough. I think I've said that about six or seven times, maybe more. But you really can't have anybody any recognizing data on that. Secondly, you know, if you are um, signing up with a company to sell your data or to sell your data to the patient, then you have to kind of manage that properly as well. Um, other things to consider are what are you going to do with it? When are you going to erase it? Where are you storing it? Um, and then finally, keep HIPAA in, uh, in, in mind at all times. Um, so in summary, I do think that video recording is really great. Um, we see a lot of cool procedures on Twitter, specifically, um, hashtag GI Twitter. Um, we are seeing more and more on Instagram and, and, and TikTok, etc. But I do think this is a really great way to share your techniques and educate the community and GI community in particular. But I, I do think that if you're going to record, you have to do it properly. You want to make sure you have the right equipment um, and you want to make sure you're doing it for the right reason. Are you doing it for education, training, quality assurance, and research purposes? That's all great. If you're doing it for monetization of the procedure, that's not bad either. I mean, not everybody, um, I mean, monetizing what you do for a living, in my personal opinion, is not bad. Um, and certainly, um, there are companies that are working with uh, selling that data to patients, and, and, and that's okay too. So I think as long as your facility and your company or your practice is okay with it, you definitely have to look into it. Um, I would encourage all listeners to learn more about recording their procedures and to consider implementing it in, in their practice in their own clinical settings. 
So that that's kind of my first podcast on um, information about recording a procedure. Um, it's a little bit of an interesting topic. I don't see a lot out there, so hopefully you guys have enjoyed this. I do want to add two more things. Make sure if you are listening to this podcast that you do um, participate in your societies, whether that's ASGE, ACG, AGA, or AASLD. Um, and there are several new societies coming out. One that I've kind of taken a big interest in is FIGHT, uh, the Foundation for Interventional and Therapeutic Endoscopy. Um, I do think that if you are an interventional endoscopist, it's something to consider, and it's FIGHT, F-I-T-E, endoscopy, so definitely recommend you look that up. And my last thing is a public service message that I have really, um, you know, I belong to a lot of physician groups, either on Facebook or on Twitter, etc. And one of the things that's really started to bug me over the last five years is the number of suicides that happen to physicians or that physicians uh, perform. You know, the suicide is a huge problem in the physician community. Depression is a huge problem. We're all stressed. We all have <clears throat> we all have problems at home. We all have problems at work. We all work for somebody that we don't like. Um, nobody has a perfect situation. You're not alone. So I would really, really encourage you that if you are somebody who's struggling with depression or anxiety and, and you feel like the pressure works too much, reach out. Um, my, you can reach out to me, DM me on Twitter. It's at SuchDaveMD, S-A-C-H-D-E-V-M-D. Reach out to friends and, and whatever. I know there's so much stigma on mental health for physicians. You're worried about your uh, local medical board finding out that you're struggling. Forget about them. Just do not do anything drastic. If you're struggling, reach out. Um, not this is not a soapbox. Not I'm not a psychiatrist, obviously, but I do think that's a huge problem. And please, 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 if you are struggling, reach out to me or to anybody. Uh, thank you so much. This is my first uh, episode. Hopefully, more to come. We'll see how this goes, and um, hope you enjoyed it. Bye.